Later members of the genus Homo increased in overall height and brain size, reaching as high as 6 feet and sporting a cranial capacity of between 37 and 79 cubic inches. Throughout these species, there is evidence of much more complex forms of behavior and the emergence of elemental cultures. Evolving in Africa 2.27 million years ago was Homo ergaster, which ranged throughout the continent. Populations of this human moved out of Africa in another great wave of expansion and followed along similar paths that the earlier Homo species took and reached China and Southeast Asia. It was these non-human groups that gave rise to Homo erectus around 1.85 million years ago. The famous Java Man and Peking Man fossils belong to that species. Some paleoanthropologists who advocate lumping see Homo ergaster as belonging to the species Homo erectus. In any case, large and slender-bodied humans with lengthy limbs and even lengthier legs had evolved. They still had large brow ridges, but started to look very much like our own species. For one, the shape and length of their legs indicate that these humans were specialized for long-distance walking and running. In Homo ergaster and Homo erectus do we see the development of the modern foot, with all toes connected and compacted into one pad. Without a big outward-facing toe to get in the way, the body could be better balanced on two feet. Longer legs enabled these humans to make longer strides, furthering energy saving. Coupled with this, we also have genetic evidence that suggests that by around 1.2 million years ago, the fur on the body reduced significantly, the skin became darker, and sweat glands began to form across the body. This package of trait changes had large benefits. A lack of thick fur and subsequent exposure of almost nude skin allows the body to cool better under the hot sun. Having sweat glands all over the body further aids in this process. Sweat glands remove heat through evaporation. Dark pigmented skin, a trait found among all humans in tropical climates, acts as a thermoregulatory tool, blocking ultraviolet radiation from entering the body. Restricting hair to the head also helps with this. There are clear environmental reasons for all these new traits, but why the need to run? Besides the obvious need to escape fast-moving predators, Homo ergaster and Homo erectus appears to have been running after its food. They were no longer power scavenging, but actively hunting with weapons. Archaeologists have associated these humans with the Acheulean Stone Toolkit 1.76 million to 200,000 years ago. This toolkit is much larger than the older Oldowan tools. New additions include large hand axes, made by napping the stone along all sides until the desired shape emerges. The symmetric shape of these tools reveals a possible capacity for aesthetic appreciation an extension of the mental capabilities that allowed the earliest hominins to picture finished tools before they constructed them. Much speculation has emerged as to what these stone axes were actually used for, and indeed more have been found than would possibly have been used, but they at least appear to be multi-purpose. If anything, the toolkit as a whole included implements for killing and cutting up prey animals, including the earliest known evidence for spear. Evidence shows that large mammals make up part of the diet of Homo erectus. While many such mammals, like antelope, horses, and deer, are clearly faster, humans can actually match their total distance per day. There is a difference between sprinting and endurance running. A prey animal will run with all its might from a predator, in this case Homo erectus, but after a while it will need to rest. With endurance running, a human can keep the same pace because it is not putting all its energy into moving. It may be significantly slower, but given enough time, it will still manage to catch up to an animal that will have eventually collapsed from heat exhaustion, allowing for the kill via the thrust of a spear. Some modern forager people still hunt in this way, so we have been able to compare their lives with those of early humans that faced similar environmental pressures. Comparing the lives of modern peoples with those of the past is tricky. 
Keep in mind that though these studies provide valuable insights, they are not direct evidence of prehistoric behaviors. Forager groups are people of the present day, not the past. Homo erectus may have also been one of the first hominins to utilize fire, but there was much controversy in this field of study. For one, we know that living apes, particularly chimpanzees, recognize and do not fear wildfires, seeing them as a means of obtaining food. They will follow the movement of a fire and go after the burnt animals and plants. Secondly, there is a big difference between recognizing what fire is, following wildfires, borrowing fire, and making it. Even though the earliest sites for hominin use of fire go back at least 1.6 million years ago, associated with Homo erectus, there is nothing to suggest that earlier species did not use fire in some way. It seems more likely that the use and eventual learning of how to make fire was a gradual process. The ability to cook food is certainly a very helpful strategy. Simple observations have shown that cooking helps soften and decontaminate food, as well as increase the food's vital nutrients. It is essentially pre-digestion. Perhaps cooking helped foster new changes in both physiology and psychology. For example, we have discovered that Homo erectus and related forms around this time had developed key structures of the brain called frontal opercula, associated with motor processing and more complex social behaviors. There was, thus, more to the increase in brain size than meets the eye. And what about speech? When did humans begin talking to each other with languages? This is a very controversial topic, and there is no consensus as to the evolution of speech and language. So let's just take a look at what we know and see where the evidence could lead us. Communication, the exchange of information with others, clearly extends back to our primate heritage. Language, the symbolic code that facilitates communication, verbally or non-verbally, is a bit trickier to pinpoint. It has been argued by many researchers that several organisms, including dolphins, have languages, but there is a lack of concrete evidence for this. What does neuropsychology have to say? There are key areas of the brain that aid with the facilitation of speech and language, like Broca's area, which controls the regions of the mouth, throat, and lungs that produce speech, and Wernick's area, which deals with speech comprehension. Physiologically, the low position of our larynx has allowed humans to produce a wider range of sounds than other primates can. So all we have to do is look at what fossil remains we have for early humans and see when these important features show up. As far as brain casts are concerned, we see a human-like Broca's and Wernick's area in Homo habilis and Homo erectus, as opposed to the more ancestral brains of Australopithecines. Interestingly, the shape of the base of the skulls in mammals shows a correlation to larynx position. What we find is that a low-oriented larynx shows up in Homo erectus, but it isn't until around 300,000 years ago that we see the right curvature in the base of the skull, suggesting that a larynx that allows a fully-fledged suite of symbolic speech had appeared. This corresponds with the earliest Homo sapiens and their kin. That's about the best we can do for now. Explanations for the evolution of these traits are, at best, informed speculation. We can be confident, however, that when clear evidence of symbolism, including expressions of culture, appear in the archaeological record, we know that early humans must be communicating with each other using languages of a type that we'll never hear. All of this new information would have dramatically changed the family group dynamic of early humans. Learning how to nap and shape stone tools would have been information that was shared and passed down generation by generation. This collective learning, as it is called, would have been facilitated by experienced individuals who understood the intricacies of making the proper stone tools. Young children could have been directly taught by these teachers, or simply observed them and tried it out themselves. Among other primates today, like chimpanzees, 
The young are often close by, watching their parents or other members of the group when they gather and use tools, learning for themselves how to undertake the task. And over time, new ways of making the tools can arise from these individuals, adding much-needed improvements and revisions, and these can be taken up by the rest of the community. Another key change was in the way that the young were raised. Based on the analysis of the best pelvic bones we have for hominins, anthropologist Robert Martin has argued that childbirth would have become very difficult by the time of Homo ergaster. This would have been due to the gradual transition towards bipedality, which altered the shape of hominin pelvises, and the expansion of the size of the brain, which meant that mothers faced extreme pain and pressure trying to pass their infants through the vagina. If left alone, there was a strong possibility of death by childbirth, which is why Robert Martin has proposed that the practice of midwifing, assisting a mother in labor, would have to have been in practice at this time. There is also evidence of a shift in childhood among later Homo species, with the length of time for development growing. This meant that, for at most the first five years of life, young humans would have been staying by their mother's side for much longer, nursing and bonding until they were of age to assist with other members of their family group. Like other primates, there would have been many members of these family groups assisting in the care of the infants, allowing the mothers to participate in hunts, tool-making, and other problem-solving activities. All of these shared experiences, of working together to survive the odds, of bringing up the next generation, and of assuring that their children have all the skills they need to function in their communities, are all hallmarks of humanity. It is perhaps reassuring that it is these most basic and most precious of human social behaviors that have been around for millions of years. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. In the next episode, the story of human evolution continues. We visit a world caught in the grips of the Ice Ages, and various human species struggle to survive the extreme shifts of temperatures as they expand across Africa and Eurasia. We meet two of our closest human relatives, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans, and see what sorts of cultures they created hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's it in this episode of On the River of History. If you enjoyed listening in and are interested in hearing more, you can visit my new website at www.podcasts.com. Just search for On the River of History. This podcast is also available on iTunes. Just search for it by name. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. The link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at KillDearCheer. You can also support this podcast by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash jtermel. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated and will help continue this podcast. Thank you all for listening, and never forget, the story of the world is your story too.